0: Several years ago, there was a there was a book that came out that eventually became a movie titled The Kite Runner. Uh, some of you may have read the book, or maybe you uh, watched the movie, or or both. And if you if you did, you know that it's really a story, uh, unfortunately, of shame. It's a story of shame and the the devastating effects that shame can have on each one of our lives. And there's a number of characters in the story who experience shame. And the way it plays out, it shows the effects on each one of their lives, but also how it affected each other as they were dealing with the shame going on in their own lives. But, but the main character experiences one event in his life as a kid that causes him so much shame and trauma that he deals with it not for a few days and not for a few weeks or a few months but for years and years of his life and it grips him over and over and over again as it comes up. The main character's name is Amir, and as a kid, he walked up on an alley where he could hear some commotion going on in the alley, and he didn't really know what was going on. He hadn't made it all the way around to be able to see, and he was a little bit nervous about what he would find. He was a little bit scared about what was going on, and he didn't really want to be seen, and so he he just kind of peeks around the corner a little bit, trying as hard as he can to not be seen, and to to his terror, what he sees in that alley is his best friend who had been trapped by some other boys and who were abusing him in absolutely horrific and humiliating and horrendous and degrading ways. He wanted so desperately as he saw what his friend was going through and the the trauma that he was experiencing in that moment to run to his friend's aid to rescue him from the situation that he was in. But he knew that the kids who were doing this to his friend were bigger and stronger than he was and that there were more of them and he was just gripped with fear and felt like there was nothing that he was going to be able to do. And so he didn't do anything. He just sat there and he froze and did nothing. This event caused him so much shame in his life. As I said, over the next few days and weeks and years as he replayed the events in his mind and how he beat himself up about being such a coward and not even trying to go to his friend's rescue and do anything to, to, to come to his aid. And then he watched as his friend began to experience the shame in his own life of what had happened to him and the effects of that shame in the way it played out in his life. How he began to isolate himself from everyone. How he began to hide from other people. How his personality changed. How he became so depressed and filled with anxiety. And as he saw his friend depressed and filled with anxiety and his personality changing and him removing himself from everyone that he loved, it caused Amir to experience even more shame in his own life on top of the Shame that he was already experiencing, and it was just this endless cycle of shame over and over and over again. At one point in the book, 26 years after this event happens, and Amir is looking back on this day, he says this. He says, That was a long time ago. That that day was a long time ago. But it's wrong, I've learned what people say about the past about how you can bury it because the past always claws its way out. He says, looking back now, I realize that I have been peeking into that deserted alley for the last 26 years of my life. This is what shame does. Shame works behind the scenes. It kind of continues to pop up and resurface in our lives every now and then and and impacts us in ways that that we we don't even always see. It's it's impacting our thoughts and our actions and and how we treat other people and can cause so much destruction, so much devastation in our lives. And we, we all have it. We all have shame and experience the humiliation and anxiety from something that we've done in our past, or something that we're doing right now, or, or honestly, even something that happened to us in our past, or something that's been uh, that we've done in uh, um, our, our past and the thing is, is it can be something that happened 10 or 20 or 30 years ago in our lives, and all of a sudden there's something that causes us to remember that event, to remember what it is that we did or remember what it is that happened to us, and all of a sudden our, our blood begins to boil, and all of a sudden we begin to feel the, the anxiousness and the anxiety and, and, and the embarrassment and just these deep feelings that cause us to want to run and want us to be able to escape and this fear that grips us that somebody's going to find out about what it is that we did or what it was that happened to us and if they knew that and they knew the real us then they would abandon us completely so crazy how it can happen so long ago and feel in that moment that you remember it that it was happening to you right there at that particular time this is how powerful shame can be in our lives and that is why it is one of Satan's most used tactics to try and rob us from the abundant life that Jesus came to give us and for us to experience in him We've been talking over the last several weeks about uh, this spiritual battle that we're in, how we have an enemy and how it is that he works in our own lives and how he works in this world to devour us and to cause destruction and to, like I said just a second ago, to rob us of the abundant life that Jesus came to bring us. And so today, as we finish up this series, I want us to look at this tactic that Satan uses of of shame and how it continues to impact us and if there's any hope, if there's any help for dealing with shame and this tactic that Satan uses in our lives to try to rob us of this life. Uh, Last week we talked about another one of Satan's tactics to rob us of this abundant life and and that's the tactic of temptation. Him trying to lure us to do something that promises satisfaction, that promises pleasure, that promises fulfillment, right? But, but watch this. Satan works so hard sometimes and for, for so long to, to get us to, to take the bait for what it is that's going to promise the satisfaction and the pleasure and the fulfillment. And as soon as we give in and take the bait, Satan immediately begins to accuse us of what it is that we just did. He promises satisfaction and joy and fulfillment. And as soon as we take the bait to get the pleasure and the satisfaction, he goes, no, what you did was wrong and what you did was so wrong, there's something wrong with you. Shame, the tactics that we begin to uh, feel by him to condemn us for what it is that he worked so hard to get us to do that was supposed to provide Pleasure and joy and life and fulfillment. It's just what he does. It's a tactic that he's been using, not just in our lives today, but for a long time. Ever since the beginning of time, pretty much. I asked you to turn to Genesis 3 a little bit earlier. We've looked at this passage a, a few times. We, we've looked at how Satan tempted Eve. He used the tactic of temptation and how he lied and deceived Eve to um, uh, eat of the fruit and this promise of what it was going to bring her and Adam. But I want you to see what happens after she and Adam took the bait we'll pick up and start in verse 6 of chapter 3. It says when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. That may not seem like it's that big of a deal, Certainly may not seem like it's that big of a deal in 2022 and the world that we live in and the wearing of clothes and all of those kind of things, but this was a big deal to help us see how big of a deal it really was. If you go back one chapter, just a few verses to the very end of chapter two, this is after God had created the world and everything in it. He had created Adam. He had finished creating Eve and been talking about how they come together and, and leave their father and mother, mother to join in this holy union together. He says this in verse 25 of chapter 2, Adam and Eve, or I'm sorry, Adam and his wife, Eve, were both naked and were told this, and they felt no shame. There was no shame. There was an openness. There was an intimacy in their relationship with each other, an openness and an intimacy in their relationship with God. They were fully exposed and they felt no shame. But as soon as Satan took them, or as soon as they take the, took the bait from the temptation, the lure that Satan was using in their particular situation, then he began to use his tactic of shame. Right? He, he began to make them feel the need to cover themselves, which is really what he does to all of us. We, we do something wrong, and, and all of a sudden we feel like the need to cover up what it is that we just did. You need to put on a mask. You need to pretend that you didn't do it. You can't let people see this about you because if they did, they would know the real you and they would would reject the real you, so you need to cover it up. You need to wear a mask. You can't let them see that you did this. Again, what Satan does is he he moves us from the guilt or the conscience that we have to show us that, hey, what we just did was wrong or what was just done to us was wrong. And from that place of it being wrong to, again, there's something wrong with you. That's the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt says you've done something wrong. Shame says, no, 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 there's something wrong with you. Deep down, this is defining you in this moment. You better cover yourself up. You better wear a mask. You better pretend that this never happened. But but watch what else happens as we go further into it. In in verse 8, it says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord. The Lord got among the trees of the garden, but the Lord called to the man, Where are you? Verse 10, he answered, I heard you in the garden, so I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Adam's shame caused him not just to feel the need to cover up, but to run and hide. Satan says the way to escape the feeling of shame, the way to escape the humiliation that you're feeling in this moment is to run run get as far as you can away from god get as far as you can away from the one who created you the one whose life You're to draw from. He doesn't want them. He doesn't want us to experience the life that we were created to experience from God in the first place. So he introduces this shame, the need to cover up, the need to wear a mask, and to to run and hide from him and to run and hide from other people. You've got to isolate yourself because if you do, he's trying to convince us that that will solve the problem. If you run from God and you get away from Him and you get away from people, you won't feel the shame anymore. But it's a lie. It's just another one of His tricks to get us away from those things to be able to continue the shame cycle, to get us further and further and deeper into the shame we've used this verse a couple of times before but second peter 5.8, Peter says to be alert and of sober mind, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I don't I don't think it's any coincidence that Peter uses a, a lion here that compares the devil to a lion prowling around looking to devour. I mean, we've all seen the videos of the, the lions prowling around and creeping up on the, the wildebeests, right? And, and he never, the lion never passed Pounces on the herd. He never pounces on the entire herd. He waits. He prowls around and waits until one of them gets a little bit away from the herd. Once they've isolated themselves from them, that's when the lion pounces. That's when the lion begins to devour and cause destruction. And and Satan is doing the same thing through his tactic of shame. He's saying isolation is the cure to the problem in order to get us away from the herd in order to get us away from that so that he can pounce on us in that moment. And when he pounces on us and gets us isolated from that, he's just gonna keep the lies coming. He's gonna keep the feelings and thoughts of shame and the embarrassment coming. He's gonna tempt us to get into sin and try to cover up the shame and medicate those feelings in illegitimate ways and it just keeps us in this endless cycle of shame. Satan says this is the way out, but it's a trick just get you further and further and further into the shame and the cycle of shame it's a powerful tactic that he uses to rob us of the life that Jesus created us to have in him but there is a way out there is a way out and it really boils down to the same thing that we've been talking about ever since week one in this series that this is primarily a battle of truth and lies satan is a liar and a deceiver and jesus says when we know the truth the truth will set us free And so through introducing the shame, Satan is lying to us. He's lying to us in these ways that what it is that you've done or what's happened to you, number one, is that you are condemned. You're condemned because of what it is that you've just done. Number two, because of what you've done or what's been done to you, you aren't loved anymore. You aren't worthy of being loved anymore. Lie number three is that what it is that you've done or what it is that's happened to you defines you now in this moment. There's something wrong inherently with you. And lie number four is, as we just said a second ago, the solution, the way out is to hide from God and to hide from other people. But these are the lies. So let me reveal to you and or remind you of some of God's truths around these areas. Perhaps the most incredible and freeing verse in all of the Bible, and I know that Kurt Kitchings would agree with me about this. He even has t shirts to prove it, and a Sunday school class's whole name around it there is Romans chapter 8, verse. I should have worn my shirt today. You gave me a shirt, and I didn't even wear it today. Dang it, man, total fail. Uh, but, but again, Romans 8 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who were in Christ Jesus. Apparently, only one of you heard the verse that I just read. There. Let me read it again in case you missed it. In Romans 8:1, Paul says, "There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus." <laughs> God, none, no condemnation. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus and you're in a spiritual union with Him, you don't ever, ever, ever have to worry about condemnation. No matter what it is that you've done, no matter what happens to you, no matter what you do in the future, or what happens to you in the future, there is no condemnation that's coming from that or in the future. It's not. Period. Done deal. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the truth. Satan wants you to fall for the lie that you're condemned. The truth is In Christ, there is no condemnation. That's primarily because of what he's accomplished. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. You are so right with God now in a union with Christ that there's no condemnation that is coming. He's already taken care of all of the sin and the things that we would be condemned for. So that is lie number one through shame tempting us to believe that we are condemned and we have to know the truth and renew our minds to the truth and walk by faith that it is true that we are not condemned if we're in Christ. The second thing that we said is Satan lies to us through our shame to convince us that we're not loved, that we're no longer worthy of his love. Let me uh, tell you what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, 2. He says, For the joy set before him, referring to Jesus, for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. I mean, talk about shame, a shameful experience. I mean, the cross, there was nothing in in this particular culture or, heck, if it was probably introduced today, that would be more humiliating, more degrading, more shameful than dying on a cross naked in front of other people. Fully exposed. Especially if you're the son of God. If you're God himself, right? But what the author of Hebrews tells us is that Jesus endured it. That he went through all of the suffering, all of the humiliation, all of the shame for the joy of Set before him. What was the joy set before him? You. You were the joy set before him. He looked through the future. And he said, you, the opportunity to be with you and have your sins forgiven and have you adopted into his family to be able to experience the love that he has for you and in this intimate relationship that you were always created to have. And he says, I'm looking into the future and I see all of the sins that you will ever commit in the future and it brings me so much joy to think about being with you and having you in my family that one day I will endure what I'm going through right now so that that can happen one day. Do you see it? Do you see how much you are loved? You are so loved that he endured the cross so that Jesus could experience the joy. He experiences joy In being with you, his creation, his son or daughter, you can't be more loved. Satan wants you to fall for the lie that what it is that you've done or what's been done to you makes you unlovable, that you aren't loved anymore. Know the truth. Renew your mind to the truth. Walk by faith that you are loved because your behavior does not define who you are. That's lie number three, really. I mean, is it Satan wants you to believe that you're defined by what it is that you've done or what's been done to you? But behavior doesn't define you. God is the one who defines you. When I was in youth ministry before becoming a youth pastor, we used to play games all the time to help just build relationships with each other and have some fun together. And one of the games that we used to play was a game where they would get an index card with the name of an animal uh, written on it, and no one else could see what animal they had written on it. And when we said go, they had to begin to walk around and imitate to the best of their ability whatever animal they had on their card. And it was always really surprising how many of them could look a whole lot like the animal that they had written on that card. I mean, some of them could really move like this animal moved. Some of them could really make noises in the same way that this animal could make noises. If you weren't looking, you might think that they were the real kind of thing. But we were looking, we were watching, and there wasn't one person in that room who was convinced, no matter how good they were at imitating the behavior of all of these different animals, that was convinced that they were all of a sudden that animal. They knew that they were still a human being whose behavior was acting like something else, that they really weren't in that moment. And that is the same thing that is true about you and I when we step into sin or any kind of behavior. It does not define you. God defines you. Your new birth. Defines you. Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, Paul says, For we know, we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. You were a sinner. You had a sin nature. But now the old you has died. There's a new you And you're no longer defined by who you once were. You're no longer defined by your behavior or what it is that you do. You're defined by who you are in Christ. And in Christ, you're holy. In Christ, you're righteous. In Christ, you are God's son or you are his daughter. And no behavior changes that. None. None. Paul's writing to all these New Testament churches and their behavior in a lot of them needed to be cleaned up, yet he addressed them as saints. He didn't use the language and say, hey, you used to be saints in Christ, but now your behavior's redefined you, so I'm not gonna use that term for you now, but when you get your act together, I'll go back to defining you by your sainthood. He just says, no, no, if you're in Christ, no matter what your behavior has been doing in this moment, you're a saint, so why don't you start to live who you are instead of pretending you're someone else? or acting like you're someone else. So that's the lie. Satan wants to use shame to convince you that you didn't just do something wrong, that there's something wrong with you. You're defined by it. The truth is that in Christ, even after that sinful behavior that Satan is making you feel shame for, nothing has changed. You're still holy. You're still righteous. You're still God's child. Nothing Nothing, nothing happens in that moment with your behavior to your union with Christ. Nothing. There's no separation between you and God. It's all been paid for. It's all been done. This is the truth. The last thing is Satan wants us to believe through the shame, like we said earlier, that you have to hide. The right response to this is to hide from God. Hide from other people. Don't let, it see, don't let them see what's going on in the real uh, world or with your own life. But th- this, again, is a lie. We're told that when Jesus died on uh, the cross, that the curtain of the temple that separated the Holy of Holies from the other parts of the temple um, was torn in two. In, in other words, there, there used to be a need to hide. There was a curtain You were supposed to hide behind the curtain. There was a sin barrier. You better hide, right? There's a holy God before you, and you're you're in perfection in your sin, and so you better do your best to hide behind the barrier um, there. But we're told that when Jesus died, the curtain was torn in two, signifying that we have direct and full access to God because that barrier has been dealt with. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 through 22 speaks to this. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open to us, how? Through the curtain, through the curtain that was torn, that is his body. And since we have a great high priest referring to Jesus over the house of God, what? What do we do? What's our response? Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. In other words, there's no need to run and hide. There's no need to run and hide when Satan fills us with shame and embarrassment and condemnation and and feeling like this is the best course of action. Hebrews says we can still approach God with full assurance that we're still okay with him, that we're still right with him, that he still loves us, that we're still able to go admit it. Yeah, God, I I, I did it. I I did that. It wasn't the best thing that I could have stepped into. I I fell for the bait, fell for the lure that this was gonna give me something I didn't have in you. But thank you. (laughs) Thank you that there's nothing that separates me between, uh, nothing that separates me between you. I still have full assurance to be able to say that we're okay. We can talk about this and bring it out of the open that I don't have to hide. Two verses after this author says the full assurance that faith brings to draw near to God. In verse 24, he says, and let us also consider how may we speak May, we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. In other words, not only do you have to run, not have to run and hide from God, you don't have to run and hide from other people. With, with, with the curtain coming down and the new creation and him taking care of all of these things, we continue to gather together. When Satan fills you with the shame for something that you've done or something that's happened to you, you don't have to run from your church family. You don't have to cover up. You don't have to put a mask on. You don't have to pretend that everything is okay. You can even bring it out into the light and let other people see what's gone on because it doesn't define you. It's not going to disrupt the union that you have with the Lord or with your brothers and sisters in Christ because we all have our stuff too. And so it can all be brought out into the open. We can all live in real, authentic, and vulnerable relationships. Andrew mentioned one of our core values was unity. Well, another one is authenticity. That Because we're not defined by our sin and we're defined by Jesus and the life of Christ that we have, we can enter into the church through real, authentic, transparent, and vulnerable relationships and don't have to pretend that everything's okay and wear a mask when we come to church. It ought to be the safest place in the world for us to talk about what shame or what Satan is trying to to shame us about in our lives. I think in a lot of ways, when you expose that, it diminishes the power that Satan's holding you over. In that, Satan, you don't have this over me anymore. I'm going to share it before everyone, right? Satan's so mad, right? It all boils down to a battle between truth and lies. When we understand the truths, when we walk by faith that they're true, Satan's tactic of shame and isolation to rob us of the joy that Jesus came to bring us will not work on us. Not if we know them and we walk by faith that they're true, right? And so the more and more we understand the truth about who Jesus is and who we've become in Him, in this inseparable union with Him, the more we're able to walk in victory. We Remember we said last week we're not fighting for victory, we're fighting from a place of victory. So this is another way we walk in that victory when He's trying to to bring the shame to us in these moments. I came across... um, Another pastor and author um, who I've read some things and watched some things for the last several uh, years, honestly, his name is John Lynch, and, um, and and he wrote something that I came across called the Great New Testament Gamble, and it's it's written from this perspective of of God kind of asking the questions: What if I revealed these particular truths to my people about my grace? And who it is that they will become when Jesus died on the cross and they receive what it is that He did for them by faith? What, what if I, what if I go to that great length to reveal all of these truths in in this this full grace that it almost seems hyperbolic? right? That almost seems like you could use the term hyper grace with it. It's just, there's no way it's going to lead to all these other things. And, and I just, I, I read it and I thought, God, what a great way I think to end out our series to read to you what he wrote here, to, to, to think about this gamble that it felt like maybe God was going to take to reveal all of these particular truths to us and what it would be like on the other side of those things To offer this much grace to us. So let me just read uh, what it is that he says. He says, What if I tell them who they are? What, What if I take away the element of fear and condemnation, judgment, or rejection? What if I tell them I love them, that I will always love them, that I can't love them more than I love them right now, that the love Uh, that I love them right now no matter what they've done as much as I love my only son. There's nothing they can do to make my love go away. What if I told them that there are no lists? What if I told them that they were righteous with my righteousness, like right now, this very moment? What if I told them that they could stop beating themselves up, that they could stop being so formal, they could stop being so stiff and jumpy around me? What if I told them that I was absolutely crazy about them? What if I told them that even if they ran to the ends of the earth and did the most unthinkable, horrible things, killed me and were unfaithful in marriage, that when they came back... I'd receive them with tears and throw a party. What if I told them that I don't keep a log of past offenses? I don't keep a log of how little they pray, of how often they've let me down, how many promises that they didn't keep. What if I told them they don't have to be owned by men's religious additions or traditions? What if I told them that if I am their savior, they're going to heaven no matter what? That it is a done deal. What if I told them that they had a new nature, that they were saints, not saved sinners who should now buck up and be better if they were any kind of Christians. After all, he's done for you. What if I told them that I actually live in them now, that I've put my love, power, and nature inside of them at their disposal What if I told them they didn't have to put on a mask? That it was okay to be who they are at this moment with all their junk and not pretend about how close we are, how much they pray or don't, how much Bible they've read or don't. What if they knew they don't have to look over their shoulder for fear that if things get too good, that the other shoe is going to drop on them? What if they knew I will never ever use the word punish in relation to them? What if they knew when they mess up, I never, ever get back at them? What if they were convinced that bad circumstances aren't my way of evening the score for taking advantage of me? What if they knew the basis of our friendship wasn't how little they sin, but how much they let me love them? What if they had permission to stop trying to impress me in any way? What if I told them they couldn't hurt my heart, but I'd never, or they could hurt my heart, but I'd never try to hurt theirs? What if I told them there was no secret agenda, that there was no trap door? And what if I told them that it wasn't about their self-effort, but about allowing me to live my life in and through them? These are all the truths that he reveals to us through his word. They're all there. They're all there. Every one of these things are true. It's what he's done. It's how he feels. What, what would it look like if, if we as Colonial Hills actually believed that was true? what would it really let me think about that seriously what if we united together we linked arms as colonial hills church brothers and sisters in christ and really believed that what we just read was really true what if we walked by faith that those things were actually true in our lives i tell you what it would look like it would look like we're walking in victory It would look like the temptation and the shame and the isolation and all the lies that he's trying to rob us from, that they don't work here because we're not fighting for victory, but from a place of victory. I think it would look like real abundant life, that it would look like joy and happiness, and even when bad situations or circumstances, that other people are able to come around and find life and joy and meaning and purpose and satisfaction and fulfillment even in those, and that a lost and dying world would look at all of us walking in these and by faith that these things are true in our lives and be drawn to them. They would be drawn to a Jesus who's providing that life through us and want it desperately in their lives for themselves. And I'm just praying and hoping that that will be true. That this is who we are. We will believe that this is true. That we'll join and unite together and walk by faith that this is true as Satan comes at us to lie, to deceive, to tempt, to accuse and shame. We'll recognize the lies. We'll replace it with God's truths even if we don't feel like it in that moment that it's true and walk by faith that it's true together. Together. We're in it together. Let's pray.